Welcome to the Love and Light Live podcast, empowering crystal lovers and spiritual entrepreneurs to learn and experience the art of crystal healing. Get ready to listen in and join our crystal movement. Hello, thanks so much for joining me for the Love and Light Live podcast brought to you by loveandlightschool.com. I'm your host, Ashley Levy, and this podcast is the number one place for all things crystals where crystal lovers and spiritual entrepreneurs can learn and experience the art of crystal healing. In today's show, I'm interviewing the amazing, fantastic, sensational Nicholas Pearson. I Always love speaking with Nicholas. Many of you who've been around for a while have had the pleasure of listening to other interviews that we've done with him. And I guess the reason that I love speaking with him so much is I feel like Nicholas is such a kindred spirit. He 100% gets me on kind of like a soul wavelength level. Um, He is a crystal person through and through. And not only that, but every time I speak with Nicholas, I learn something new about crystals, and I usually learn something new about myself. And I just can't say that very much um, anymore. I mean, you know, being in this field over a decade, it's not often that I'll learn about a completely new stone I've never heard of, and that's something that happens in this interview. Um, I'm always learning new things about crystals and always learning new things about healing and energy work, but Nicholas has this way of putting things into perspective and making you think about them in a way you never would have otherwise, and I'm just so grateful to him for our amazing talks. So without further ado, I will cue up our interview all about Stones for the Goddess. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Today, I am excited to be conversing yet again with the amazing Nicholas Pearson. Um, He's been immersed in all aspects of the mineral kingdom for more than 20 years. You may not know this, but Nicholas actually began teaching crystal workshops while he was in high school, later studying mineral science, and then going on to teach crystal and Reiki classes throughout the United States. Nicholas is the author of The Seven Archetypal Stones, Crystals for Karmic Healing, Crystal Healing for the Heart, and Foundations of Pure Reiki. You may be familiar with some or even all of those titles. He's one of my very favorite authors about crystals, and he is also um, releasing uh, Stones of the Goddess, which will be coming out in February of 2019. It's already available for pre-order on Amazon and will be sold everywhere books are sold. So Nicholas, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me on. It's it's we always have the most fun when we chat, so I'm really looking forward to today. We do. I am really excited about this particular conversation because it seems like um, more and more this idea of connecting with goddess energy with the divine feminine has been coming up. So um, I'm wondering if you would just tell people a little bit more about yourself and why this particular topic is something that you're passionate about right now. Yeah. So, you know, I started my spiritual path pretty young and I didn't grow up in a particularly religious or spiritual household. Um, My father was a recovering Catholic. So that meant I wasn't really raised with anything in particular. Um, And that gave me a lot of freedom. And You know, one week, my dad and I might go to the library on the weekend, and I would pick up a ton of books on science, whether it was the obvious geology or something maybe a little bit more, um, you know, left field for me. And then other weeks, it'd be things like mythology and fairy tales and folklore 
And that was kind of my my first look at, you know, sort of non-standard religion, although it might not have been what was being practiced today. It kind of gave me a window into the idea that there was there was more to spirituality and religion than what I kind of vaguely saw on the horizon among my peers. And by the time I was in high school, I really started to explore earth-based spiritual paths, things like paganism and witchcraft and the whole sort of metaphysical milieu. Um, although crystals have been my primary way of getting into a lot of different topics of discussion, um, I really loved the idea that there were so many religious traditions and spiritual paths that honored the divine as both masculine and feminine, sometimes both at the same time, sometimes neither all at once. Um, and I really found that strangely comforting. Um, you know, I grew up in a single parent household, so it was just me and my dad. And I was raised by this sort of tribe of women, my grandmother, my aunts, um, all of these strong uh, female figures, my stepmother after my father got remarried. So this idea of the goddess felt really reassuring to me in a way that, you know, God the Father didn't, didn't resonate. Um, and the idea for this book just kind of started as a, a cursory glance at stones that related to different goddesses around the world. And, you know, we talk about our planet, we personify it as Mother Earth. And this is maybe the most primal and universal uh, experience of the divine feminine. And you can go to virtually any ancient culture and you see Mother Earth, a Mother Earth figure, an Earth goddess somewhere in there. Um, and there's just something about when we hold crystals, we are holding part and parcel of the body of the goddess. And so it, it really started as a little aside and kept poking away at the back of my mind until finally I had to sit down and write it. You know, I really appreciate you sharing that personal story of being raised in a single parent household, but then also having this community of women around you that really shaped and molded, um, not only like you as a person, but also in, in some ways, it seems your uh, ultimate connection with spirit. And I find it so interesting that many of us who kind of lean toward this more earth-based uh, approach to spirituality have that in common in one way or another. We have these very strong uh, female roles, um, female presences in our life that really kind of shaped our experience of how we connect to spirit, how we internalize that, and then how we kind of reflect it back in an outward way. And I, I just want to say thank you for sharing that because it's something that I think many of our listeners will be able to relate to. And it also just kind of shines a light on how deeply personal your books are. I mean, I feel like every time we speak, there's always something that has moved you in your own life to write this book. You haven't just chosen a, a topic out of thin air. It's something that comes from this kind of deeply personal experience that you've had. Thank you. And, and you know, there, there was a lot of reservation in writing this book because let's face it, at the end of the day, I'm a dude and I'm writing about the goddess. So <laughs> what, what authority do I have to do this? But, you know, we, we all come from women. Um, I have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome and, you know, one was a gift from my, my biological mother and the other from my father. And I, I have this sort of feminine current of energy within me, as do us all. We all have that inner spark of divine masculine, divine feminine. And so I reconciled it pretty early on. You know, my publisher was excited about the project and I was, I mean, I, I couldn't stop once I got started. Um, it just, it had to be written. So I'm, I'm really grateful that I haven't run into any, we'll say friction yet 
because of that. Um, and I think it's just uh, a symbol of how timely the, the return of the divine feminine is. And, you know, I have to say, it's so, um, I guess, enlightening for me to hear that coming from you as well, like possibly having that concern that like, well, what right do I have to speak about this? But every right. I mean, and I love, I love that you are a dude coming to this playing field and (laughs) writing about your personal experience, because that's what is so amazing about these energies of divine masculine and divine feminine is we all have both of these within us and we all have the capability to tap into both of these. And, um, so thank you for acknowledging that. Thank you. Now, one of the things that I was really excited to see, um, is that this book, similar to some of your others, this focuses on some certain crystals and really is kind of a deep dive into a set of particular stones. And obviously in this case, stones that relate to the goddess in one way or another. So stones of the goddess, crystals for the divine feminine, it, it focuses on 100 specific goddess-centered stones. And uh, some of these are listed on the little you know, excerpt of the book that your publisher has put out. Um, and one of them that of course really caught my attention was carnelian, which is also known as the blood of Isis. So I'm wondering, because this is, I've always had a fascination with um, mythology and, and that sort of thing as well, particularly um, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient Egypt. So can you tell us a little bit about carnelian in particular, just to give us a taste of some of the amazing research that has gone into this book, because that's one thing I love that you always bring to the table. Yeah. So, I mean, carnelian is probably one of those stones that in my my beginning days of immersing myself in mythology um, kind of popped up in several cultures. I have to say my my probably first allure towards um, a, a non-traditional spiritual path was studying ancient Egypt when I was in maybe middle school, we'll say. Um, and I just absolutely fell in love with the art, the architecture, the language, the mythology, everything about it was just so mystical. And I, I, I really just couldn't get enough of it. Um, so it was a pleasure to revisit Carnelian, we'll say a few years later, um, <laughs> as, as an adult. Um, but, you know, Carnelian is um, a member of the Chalcedony group. If it's got strong bands, we call it agate. If it doesn't, then we can just call it Chalcedony. Um, the name of it um, has gone through a lot of iterations. It's named after a type of fruit called the cornel cherry. Um, later altered to resemble the Latin carnum, meaning flesh, because it's got that sort of flesh-toned. Um, you know, we're all kind of that pink color on the inside, orangey, red. Um, so it's got this very visceral kind of feel to it. And in ancient Egypt, they they kind of noted the resemblance between that real fleshy color, that blood red color, and um, the connection to the Great Mother. And um, it was often carved into a type of amulet called a tet or tiet or some other ancient Egyptian word that I'm sure I will butcher, um, but it, it represented um, the sort of girdle of Isis. Um, there are a few theories that this kind of abstract symbol, and it, it kind of looks like it could be a, a distant cousin of the Ankh. It's, it's a, a looped cross at top with sort of droopy arms, um, and then it's got a band around the middle of it. Um, there's, there's some people that believe it might actually resemble parts of the female reproductive system as well. Um, mm-hmm. But they called this... Um, the stone, the blood of Isis, and they often carved the the tet into or, or out of um, the stone carnelian, um, and so 
it has this idea of the life-giving energy that comes from the great mother, you know, in, in human biology, um, you know, once menses starts, the ability to procreate is, is evident um, as, as young women approach adulthood. And so that was a sign in ancient times of the sort of power, the procreative, the generative power that was embodied in all of womankind. And carnelian was a stone that represented that to them. Um, in, in very, very ancient cultures, we see uh, a really interesting correlation between that symbol of, of blood, of the life-giving power, and of magic. Um, just like the great goddess gives birth to all of creation, you know, in, in the microcosm, you know, women can give birth to new life. And that gave, made them the very first magicians, the very first healers, the very first um, alchemists, we could say. And it really wasn't until later on in human history that men began to take on that same role when they could actually take iron out of the earth and, you know, start the, the process of metallurgy. That was about the time we start to see the, the role shift from a, a more female-dominated um, scene of, of myth and magic to one that's kind of transferred to male powers. And interestingly enough, it's iron that gives carnelian its blood red color. It's iron that gives our own blood the same color. So there's this great power, this great strength that comes from working with carnelian. And if we want to kind of compare it to the energies of the divine feminine, it can be really fierce. We sometimes see it associated with some real strong deities, um, warlike goddesses, the fierce goddesses, the dark goddesses, as well as that great sort of cosmic mother like we see in Isis. Wow. I am just so blown away right now. I've never really heard anyone articulate that shift in our viewpoint of magic and what magic is from the divine feminine through menses, menstruation, birth, to the divine masculine through the ability to shape and alter metals. Um, and this is, wow, this is just kind of totally shifting my, my viewpoint of how this, this transformation really happened. I'm so glad that we chose to talk about this stone. Um, you, there's another crystal mentioned here in this set of 100 crystals that I've never heard of before. And for me, that is something <laughs> that doesn't happen often. Um, and you have it as Sakura stone. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about this? Because if I haven't heard of it, I'm guessing there are some of our listeners that this will also be a new one for. Yeah, so they're, they're relatively obscure. Um, I hadn't heard of them until maybe 2009. Um, shortly before I made a trip to Japan, I, I kind of discovered about these stones, about their existence. A friend of mine was over there teaching English, and I made a trip to do some sightseeing, to visit some sacred sites, to get real close to um, the heart and soul of my Reiki practice and its origins. And um, it was while there that um, I saw these stones for the first time. I'd heard about them, but I never actually witnessed them. And if you, if you look at them, they kind of resemble cherry blossoms. Um, they're usually kind of six-fold uh, symmetry, kind of like a, a trapeze emerald would have. Um, and they're, the origin of them is under debate. I think the, the best theory is that they're a pseudomorph. Something rather micaceous in structure is replacing what used to be cordierite or iolite um, with that same trapeze kind of format. And they're only found in one place in the entire world, and it's in Kyoto in Japan, which is famous for its cherry blossoms. And the, the local people actually believe that the, the kami, the, the indwelling consciousness or divinity of the cherry blossom dwells within the earth, inside rock, 
in these stones, the sakura ishi or the sakura seki, the, the cherry blossom stones, um, while the trees are not in bloom. And since they have such a short lifespan, you know, the, the cherry blossoms themselves, any, any given tree is only blooming maybe for a couple of weeks, maybe a little longer if we're lucky, um, although they're different um, cultivars and species. So they, they bloom over a longer period, but no one tree is doing it for long. So once the essence of the flower is gone, the spirit retreats into these beautiful little cherry blossoms within the heart of these stones. Um, and they're just the sweetest energy because they're a type of pseudomorph where one mineral is replacing another but keeping the same sort of outward appearance or structure. Um, pseudomorph literally means um, false form because it, it falsely is, is looking like what it used to be, chemically speaking, even though it's a brand new mineral. Um, these are stones of incredible transition. And although these are tiny little stones, they, they don't get very big. The, the photo of the ones in the book, you could probably fit all the ones that are in that photograph on my thumbnail. Wow. Um, they they have this grace to them. Um, as a form of mica, they allow us to have greater flexibility and hope. They give us grace under pressure. And because they themselves have undergone extraordinary transition, they allow us to make those same sort of transitions with ease, maybe with a little bit more wisdom. So do they actually take on the color of the cherry blossoms then, or is it more about that uh, structure, that six-pointed structure? Some of them are pink. Um, you know, this is where I have to admit I'm a little bit colorblind, so I don't even know if any of the ones in my collection are pink. It's a color <laughs> okay. I don't see well. Um, but the pink ones are the most prized and the most expensive in Japan. Um, they're, they're not often seen on the market outside of Japan um, because, you know, there's, there's great big population density over there. So any native minerals that are mined there often get kind of eaten up by the, the local market before they can be exported. Um, so they, by the time they make it, you know, stateside, they're, they're few and far between and often much more expensive in price. But if you look, you can find them. Um, I have a friend who just picks them up in Tucson for a, a really good price. So they're out there. Amazing. And of course, you know, in Japan, just like in most places of the world right now, crystal healing becoming more and more prevalent in the culture there. So um, it's not surprising to me that especially with the local mythology that's connected to these stones, uh, representing something so important that's celebrated in Japan each year that these would be highly prized pieces. Oh, absolutely. And they're, they're just absolutely darling. Um, Japan's form of crystal healing is is very unique. It's got influence from, you know, some of the same people who've influenced our own movement, like Jane Ann Dow and Katrina Raphael, but then it's kind of taken on its own flavor, its own uniquely Japanese flavor. So um, um, it's just it's just a treat to see something like this out there. And they, they really do look like little cherry blossoms. I love that. Thank you so much for, for telling us about those. I'm very excited. Oh, it's my um, pleasure. Nicholas, something else that you discuss in this book for each crystal, you provide the stones, astrological correspondences, elemental correspondences, the goddess archetype, um, some of the healing properties. How do these things help collectively paint a picture of how we can work with that stone to connect with these particular goddess archetypes? You know, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I think for starters, if we kind of understand that these are not concrete forms, you know, if we hold a piece of um, the Sakura stone, for example, and its goddess archetypes are Earth Mother and, and the Maiden, out of the Triple Goddess, it doesn't mean that it, it only relates to those things, but those are lenses that we can use to understand how the energy of the stone relates. 
And then also the stone becomes a, an inroad to those sort of archetypal frequencies. You know, no goddess, no god, no spirit, no angel is just an archetype. They're, they're so much more than that, but they, they still have that sort of archetypal level at which they exist. Um, so we could use a crystal that has uh, an affinity for a particular archetype if we want to maybe start a devotional practice to connect to some specific aspect of the divine feminine. So if you're working with an ocean goddess, maybe like Yamaya out of the Afro-Caribbean tradition, you might pick a stone that has a very oceanic quality, something like Larimar or Aquamarine. Um, if you're working with earth goddesses, you know, that that great earth mother that we all walk upon every day, then you might pick an earthier kind of stone. And so sometimes the elemental associations correspond with that. Sometimes we see it in the um, astrological associations. Um, some of those are a little bit uh, modern. You know, Sakura stone, for example, has never has never been a part of the classical gem lore. So therefore there is no ancient astrological signature for it. So I kind of had to sit in meditation and see, what does this feel like? Does this feel like the energy of Mars or of the moon or of Jupiter? Um, and so we kind of have to fill in the gaps with that. But I do want to say that these are subjective. You know, when you sit down with it, you're going to find some stones like emerald that are associated with a whole lot of signs, a whole lot of planets and a whole lot of archetypes. So you got to sit and see how those how those themes relate to your own life and what does that stone mean for you? And, you know, this is one thing that I've always appreciated about your work is that as much as you put so much effort into your research and finding historical significance in the way that we connect with crystals, you don't discount the present. You don't discount the unique user's experience when it comes to working with these crystals. And in fact, you encourage that as being almost the greater piece of importance as much as we can gather a lot of information and insight and wisdom into working with our crystals through what ancient peoples um, have done before us. Our own personal experience becomes just as important in that equation. And, and I love how you honor both of those uh, parts to our connection with these minerals. Oh, thank you. You know, I, I got to where I am by, by learning to listen to the stones. And I really hope that, you know, that's something I can inspire other people to do because, you know, books are great. I write books. I want you to buy them. But at the same time, I, I want you to go out and have your experience and see what your piece of emerald or your piece of aquamarine or your piece of something I've never heard of says for you. And, you know, one of the things that you do to encourage all of us to do that, Nicholas, with this book is you've included some different magical rituals for these crystals. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, are these things that have come from your own experience with crystals, things that you do in your own life, things that you've learned about from talking to other people, things you've learned about through your historical research. Uh, how did you finalize um, what has gone into the book as it, as it relates to ritual and bringing these crystals and associated practices into our daily lives? Uh, I mean, the, the first test was it had to be relevant and then the second was it had to be practical. So um, because this is a book specifically about the divine feminine, we had to kind of look at things in the context of the divine feminine. So um, you'll see things like making um, magical pouches and charm bags or making crystal elixirs or oils, um, as well as grids and, and other, other ceremonies that you can perform. Um, so they had, to, they had to somehow relate to 
that sort of goddess archetype, goddess energy going on. And then it had to be easy. If I, if I gave someone a list of 10 of the hardest to find minerals in the face of the planet, they would never perform the ritual and then we'd lose the value of it. And if it had really long ritual scripts, you know, beautiful pieces of poetry um, that you had to commit to memory, people also wouldn't bother. So I tried to make it as simple as possible. So it's also kind of like a recipe book. When you find a recipe you really love and you're out of an ingredient, you improvise. And it's the same way with a lot of these. Um, so some of them come from historical purposes. You know, if I'm looking at things related to goddesses of love, there's like an, uh, a, a couple of elements in there that represent uh, Aphrodite. So you can, you can see a lot of the ingredients that go into those rituals from the historical record. Some of them come from personal experience. So, you know, my experience with Moonstone gave me uh, an idea of the triple goddess grid that's in there. And then others were, you know, kind of what does the mineral kingdom want me to put in this book? Ultimately, I tried every day that I sat in front of the computer to make it a, a devotional practice. I would light a candle, light some incense, open my heart and connect to the divine feminine and say, okay, I have an agenda, but yours is more important. So um, you guide me on what needs to go in this book. I love that. Thank you so much. And Nicholas, I am, like I said, very excited about this book. Um, I was lucky enough to actually see a, a preview copy uh, because I'll be writing a little um, blurb for you in just admiration and appreciation of what you've created to share with all of us. But it's also available for pre-order now. The release date is currently set for February 19th um, and it's available for pre-order on Amazon. It'll be available everywhere books are sold. But if people would like to learn a little bit more about you and stay connected with you as an author and workshop facilitator, how can they do that? Um, you know, the easiest place where all my stuff is generally located um, is on my Facebook page. It's uh, facebook.com slash The Luminous Pearl. I try to stay pretty active on social media with the same handle, The Luminous Pearl, on Instagram and everything. Um, you can check out my Amazon author page. Um, I keep all my events listed there, as well as on my publisher's website, which is innertraditions.com. Uh, so you can just Google me on that and it'll pop up and hopefully links to lovely interviews like this and um, links to upcoming events will be on there as well. So we will have links to everywhere you can find Nicholas on social as well as his website, his Amazon author page, and his page on Inner Traditions. Um, definitely give that a look. It's innertraditions.com slash author slash Nicholas hyphen Pearson. And you can find links to some amazing interviews that Nicholas has done over the years on that page uh, and learn more about his phenomenal books of which this is the fifth, I believe. Yes. Well, Nicholas, thank you again so much for being here, sharing your knowledge and wisdom and holding space for this divine feminine energy to uh, reconnect with all of us. Thank you so much, Ashley. It's my pleasure. Wow. <laughs> Listening to that again has just shifted my perspective a whole nother time. I got so much more out of that interview, even the second time through. Um I guess that's the benefit of listening rather than just doing it live and, you know, being in the moment. But Nicholas just always has such awesome information to share. So I hope that you found a lot of value in today's show. And if you want more information about anything I discussed in this episode, and of course, to follow up, stay connected with Nicholas through his website, social channels, or his author pages, you can learn more over on the website at loveandlightschool.com slash blog. And if you enjoyed the show today, the biggest compliment you can give me is to leave a quick rating and review 
over at loveandlightschool.com slash iTunes. And I always love reading these reviews that you guys leave, checking out the five-star ratings. I always, always appreciate that. And I want to just give a shout out to KRP87B, who left a five-star review and said, wonderful listening experience on crystals. After many years of not using crystals, I decided to get back into them. This was a great way to get back up to speed. Thanks. You are so welcome. Thank you for your review, for tuning into the podcast. So while you're at that link, loveandlightschool.com slash iTunes, leaving us an awesome rating or review, you can also subscribe as well so you never miss a future episode. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Love and Light Live podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Levy, and I'll be back with you in our next episode. Until then, crystal blessings. The Love and Light Live podcast is a production of the Love and Light School of Crystal Therapy. Visit us online at loveandlightschool.com.